to Genesis 6, and I'll be reading quite a lot today through to chapter 8, and I'll explain it in a minute. But let's pray before we come to the reading of God's Word. Our Father in heaven, we need to hear from you. We come to you today as a needy people. We've heard from so many different voices this week, and now we want to hear from you. That's the prayer of my heart. We, it only takes five minutes to hear a million different voices on social media and on the news and on the internet. Father, we want to hear from you. I pray that the words that I'm about to preach would be the words of the Holy Spirit. And an even better sermon as the people receive it and hear it. Work through me. I feel very feeble and frail, but give me a humble heart. Give, give us all a humble heart that we may receive your words and you will speak to us what we need to hear. I ask that in the name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen. What kind of picture comes into your mind? Just, just let your mind go when you think of Noah's Ark. Um, maybe there are many nurseries, aren't there, over the country that would have a bright picture, a big boat full of cute animals, you know, like Lego and things like that, or Duplo, whatever it is. Noah's family in long bathrobes, and a nice rainbow in the background. Is that fair to what most, most, most people think when they think of Noah's Ark? A cute boat with lots of nice little animals, and Noah wearing a bathrobe and a nice little rainbow. It's warm, it's cheery, it's full of giraffes and bunnies and kangaroos. Who, can't, who loves all of those? And has you know, mosquitoes and tigers as well, but we'll forget that for the moment. Or maybe you have a wooden puzzle somewhere that puts together the pieces of the story. By the way, I love doing jigsaw puzzles. I've just, really, I've just learned over the Christmas break, so I've become an avid jigsaw puzzle. It's, it's a great thing to do, by the way. And then, um, or I completely digress then, but or, you know, stuffed animals that come together in Noah's Ark. And it is a happy ending for those on the Ark, for Noah's family and the animals. But if we're honest, and we just think about it just a little more deeply, it's not a sweet story, is it? Noah's Ark is not a sweet story. Because the, Noah, the story of Noah and the flood is one of the most sobering, and honestly one of the most horrifying stories in the Bible. Because it tells us the story of God's judgment on sin. It's a story that tells us actually the depth of human depravity and how offended God is by sin. It's a story of God's hatred for sin. So let us not in our own hearts sentiment, make it sentimental or minimise it or cartoonise, if there's such a word, cartoon it. The story is about death and destruction, but that is not all that it is about, praise the Lord. It is about life and recreation. It's a story of grace and mercy, just as much as it is a story of sin and judgment. So these chapters, chapters 6, 7 and 8, are not just about devastation, they're about recreation. They're not just about God's thunder in judgment, 
they're about God's undeserved mercy. So this is, this is what I want to do with this text, because it is long, it's two and a half chapters. I will read it, because the sermon is not inspired, but the word is. I will stop at various places to give a running commentary on it, and then once we've read it through, I'll just look at three themes in closing. The theme of divine judgment, the theme of decreation and recreation, and the theme of divine grace. So we've had the generation, if you like, the told off of creation, we've had the told off of Adam, and now we have the third of those ten, if you're remembering, the third of the ten generations, Noah. So if you have a Bible, just keep it open and we'll flick through. But Genesis 6, and I'll read from verse 9. And I'll pause at verse 15. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Um, it's a big boat. By modern standards, I kind of worked out, it's the size of a small cargo ship. There are bigger ships today, but for the ancient world, this was a massive undertaking and a massive boat. Let's continue and just look at 16 of chapter 6. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything on the earth that is on the earth shall die. So this is a global catastrophe. It's not isolated to a region, but the entire world is flooded. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you. This is the first time in the Bible we have the actual word bereth in Hebrew, which is covenant. And we'll get more to, onto the covenant in chapter 9. But the covenant is made with Noah, but the covenant relationship and the covenant blessings extend to his family. God makes a covenant with Noah, but the blessings and the relationship extend to his family. It's not just for Noah, his family read the benefits and the blessings of this covenant arrangement. Verse 19 of chapter 6. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food, that is eaten and store it up, 
It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, he did all that God had commanded him. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now pause there in the verse 3, because when we think of the flood, we think of the animals coming in two by two, don't we? We even sing it, don't we? I, I, I vaguely remember a song I sung, the animals went in two by two. Anyway, but here it says you bring seven pairs. It's not an inconsistency. In chapter 6, the instruction is saying, at least you're going to bring in a pair of every animal. And chapter 7 further clarifies they're to bring one pair of the unclean and seven pairs of the clean. The clean and the unclean laws haven't yet been codified, but they're obviously already operative in some way. And the reason he needs to bring seven pairs of the clean animals is, at the end of chapter 8, Noah is going to sacrifice clean animals. So already, whether Noah realised it or not, God is thinking on the other side of the flood. That there will be life after the storm, and the first act will be an act of worship, sacrificing animals to me. And then in chapter 9, God gives them to eat of the flesh of animals, so some of them will be food for them before the animals could reproduce. So it's, 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 it's if you like, it's God's plan being revealed for after. That's the reason for seven pairs of clean and two pairs of unclean. Let's pick up at verse 4, chapter 7. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of that month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. This is history. Moses, Moses wants us to see that this is not a fable or a myth. He gives us an exact date. It happened on an exact day. Noah remembers it happened on this day in his life. And what we see throughout these two chapters is a number of times where it marks the events according to to the year of Noah's life. He wants us to see that this is history, this happened in time and space. Verse 12, And the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. That is a lot of rain. Even for us, isn't it? That's a lot of rain. Rain happened for forty days and forty nights. Now, there's a lot, there's something really interesting here about numbers. If you know your Bible, what does the number 40 indicate? It's a time of trial and testing for God's people. A, if, if you want to do it, there's a fascinating study by looking at the number 40. A dear friend of mine, Klaus 
preached once in Vienna at our church on the number 40. He reigned for 40 days and 40 nights. They wandered in the wilderness with Moses for 40 years. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before he fought David. And Jesus is in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24 speaks from, you know, from the Deuteronomy, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes. Verse 1. The 40 is a number that indicates God's people are in trial and suffering. Genesis 7 verse 13. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. You can almost sense the drama well, that must have been like the door clanging shut, knowing that it is raining and it's going to continue to rain, and not knowing whether they would ever be able to open the door again. I'm not being fanciful, but it's a little bit like us right now, isn't it? Will the door ever open again? And then Genesis 7 verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth, the waters increased, and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And Genesis 8, But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. There are demarcations according to Noah's life of when the events happened. Now if you try and do the math, you get confused. It's not always clear what days are inclusive of other days. For example, the 40 days it rained is probably included in the 150 days when the water was prevailing on the earth. So you just can't add up the numbers and get the right sum. But we see the waters abate, the tops of the mountains were seen. And then verse 6, At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. 
It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, so, most, so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wife, wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. How long was Noah in the ark? Well, Genesis 7, verse 11. 600th year, second month, 17th day. When did they come out from the boat? Genesis 8, 13 to 14. The year 601st, verse 14, second month, 27th day, one calendar year, and if you count from 17, inclusive of the 27th, another 11 days. It's easy to remember because they would have been operating according to the lunar calendar, and the lunar calendar has 354 days, 354 days plus 11, you have 365. So they were in the boat a solar year. And then uh, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike again down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. God promises no more judgments. He's not saying no judgment for any reason or no final judgment, but no judgment like this. No judgment that will wipe out everyone and everything from the earth. As long as the earth remains, you can count on days and nights and seasons until the final end is here. So just in closing, if you like, the first is divine judgment. We cannot blame God for the flood. The emphasis here is on the wickedness of man. Genesis 6 verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. They deserve what they get. This may be hard for us, but until we see that sin is an offence against the holy God, the Bible will make no sense to us. 
The world teaches that we are born good. But the Bible teaches us, and it is real truth, that we are sinful from birth. The Bible makes no sense to us unless God is holy and our sin is offensive to him. It makes no sense at all. And if you get these two things, a big holy God and big sinners, the Bible makes sense. Without that, you have questions you will never get an answer to. But notice here that creation suffers because of man's sin. The animals, the birds of the heavens, the animals on the earth. He doesn't say the animals under the earth, that is the third category, but thankfully they do not have to get the fish and the sea creatures because they have plenty of water. But the animals, creation is wiped out. We see the reverse of it in Romans 8, where it says that creation is longing to be set free from their bondage to enjoy the freedom that the sons of God have experienced. In other words, God does not first of all deal with creation and then look to us because we are a part of creation. Do not think that God's primary relationship is with trees or birds or fish or mountains or rivers. His relationship is with human beings and because of their sin on the earth, creation suffers. And because God renews men and women, creation will be renewed. God deals first of all with man. The emphasis is on God's judicial action. Not so much upon the drama of every human life being snuffed out, but on God's righteous judgment on sin. If you look at chapter 7, 21 and 22, notice the alls and the everies. All flesh died, all swarming creatures, all mankind, everything on dry ground. He blotted out every living thing, all, all, every, every. Just as he promised in chapter 6, verse 7, now he delivers in chapter 7, verse 23, to blot out on the face of earth every living thing. God had patiently waited. If you remember from chapter 6, when the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, his days shall be 120 years. God gave 120 years to repent. Just like Jonah said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. God gave warning, ample warning. This is like God saying in 1900 that 2020 will be a bad year. That is, what it, that is, what is, that, that is the time difference between God's warning. God patiently waiting. But they did not listen. But God was patient. In fact, 1 Peter 3 verse 20 speaks of God patiently waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God is waiting, he's patiently waiting for men and women, boys and girls to repent. Patiently waiting, enduring, long-suffering with man's evil on the earth. And enough is enough. And I think that's a great reminder for us today that God is not mocked. We look around and we think that God is not in control, but sin is. But God is not mocked. And this will go a long way toward forming your worldview and a biblical worldview. If you ask yourself this one question, did this actually happen? Did, did what we read about this morning, did it actually happen? Because if it did, and if the Bible, what the Bible says is true, it means 
God has unrivaled power and majesty. And it means that our human sinfulness is worse than we think. And it means that God's wrath is justly poured out on sinners. It means that we should continue to call upon one another to repent. And to a life of righteousness. And it means, it means that not all will be saved. There is a lot of theology in this story. Some of you may know that other cultures in the ancient Near East, they, they have their flood stories. Did you know that? The Sumerians or the Akkadians or the Babylonians, they all have a history of a flood. And the most famous is called the Gilgamesh epic. They have flood stories in their history. And we have nothing to fear about that, that other cultures have similar flood stories. In fact, far from saying that the Bible is not true, it is that if so many peoples in history had a story about a flood, suggests it actually happened. And you can read the other stories and compare it with the biblical record, and yes, there's more differences than similarities, but God is sovereign. God is pure, God is measured, God is patient. And God is utterly and always in control. And if you're tempted to think that Old Testament God is mean, New Testament God is nice, I'll take the Jesus God instead of this Old Testament God who did all of this. You can't have Jesus without the Old Testament. Jesus himself draws on the flood story to say that there is another judgment coming. Matthew 24. For as we're in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, this is Jesus in Matthew, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is true, brothers and sisters, this is true. Noah was building the ark year on year, year on year, and people went around their lives saying, he's crazy. People may, you may think and know that people think that you are bonkers for having faith. But Jesus says, Jesus says that there is a day of judgment coming. So if you believe this happened, if you believe this happened, and you believe what Jesus says, you believe a day is coming, and it will be like the flood. That people will be eating and drinking, going about their lives as if nothing had happened being mean to each other on social media, laughing, joking, drinking, and judgment will come. And the only question is, are you ready or not? Are you ready or not? That is Jesus' point. In an instant, everything will change. I'm not trying to suggest with this analogy that the pandemic is like the flood. Or even that it is necessarily God's judgment. Although I think we are right to ask that question but I think we can relate. I was thinking that the beginning of 2020 seems like a generation ago to me. And if you just think about it, February, we kind of heard something called coronavirus. March, for a couple of weeks we didn't shake hands after the service, and then I doubt any of us imagined what the rest of the year would be like, and that it's even worse this week. We were going about our lives, we were going about our work. We were planning the year. There was all kinds of conferences and trips. 
And suddenly everything shut down and here we are. And there is another judgment coming, Jesus says, and it will be as real as a flood. But there's one thing that we should take from this is, are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you ready to meet your maker? The second brief theme is decreation and recreation. This is not just a massive thunderstorm about 40 days and 40 nights. This is showing us that God's creation is coming undone and he's going to start a new creation out of the watery ashes. So first of all though, the world was undone. In, it's very easy to remember, 7 11, um, chapter 7, verse 11. There are more 7-11s in America than there are in this country, but I still remember 7-11s growing up. But in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The experience was how we would experience torrential rain, but the description has echoes of creation. The deep burst forth. So in addition to rain, think about this, waters must have come up, bubbled up from the earth. That's my understanding of it. And then the windows of the heavens were open. Now at creation, we read, Genesis 1 verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God separated the waters. He puts waters in the sky and waters in the deep. And so chapter 7, verse 11, is showing us that the act of creation is being undone. The wall between the waters and above and the waters below will be removed. And as the waters are pouring forth from the heavens and the waters are bubbling up from below, creation is being unravelled. And then there is a picture of a new creation, chapter 8. In Genesis, the earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God is hovering over what? The waters. The Ruach, the Spirit, the wind of God, hovered over the waters in creation in Genesis 1. Genesis 8, verse 1, God made a wind blow over the earth. God's Ruach, God's wind, God's Spirit hovered over in an act of recreation just as he did in Genesis 1 with creation. Now verse 2, the fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain was restrained. In other words, this act of separating the water from the waters, undone by the flood in Genesis 7, is put back into place in Genesis 8. God is making a new land, a new earth, a new creation. And what he did before, he will do again. And just like in Genesis 1, animals inhabit the earth before man does. In Genesis 8, the dove, the animals, begin to inhabit the earth, finds a place to rest before man finds his home on the earth. There are all kinds of parallels between Adam and Noah. Because after the flood is creation 2.0 and Noah is a new Adam. Both worlds are formed from water and chaos. Adam and Noah are associated explicitly with the image of God. Both are walk with God. Both rule and have dominion over animals. Both are told to be fruitful and multiply. 
Both work the ground and both sin. Adam sinned in eating, Noah sinned in drinking. And the result of both their sin is exposure and nakedness. Both had three sons, Cain, Abel, Seth, Seth, Ham, Japheth. And both sets of sons divide into the elect and the non-elect, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Noah is a new kind of Adam on the new kind of earth, creation, rebirth and reborn. You know that seven is the biblical number for fullness? Eight is the number for renewal or recreation. How many people are in the ark? Eight. From these eight will come a recreation of new people on the planet. On what day were the sons circumcised? The eighth day. And Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, that is a week plus one on the eighth day as it were. And you can look at the way that the Greek is worded in the New Testament. It's to make that statement by not just saying on Sunday, but on the week plus one, on the eighth day. Eight is the number of recreation, of renewal. This is a new page in history. So much so that 2 Peter 3 describes the world that was and the world that is. The flood is the marker. You have before the flood and after the flood. And we have a picture not just of divine judgment, not just of devastation, but of recreation, the new world that God was making on the earth. And finally, divine grace. We see that Noah is the sort of man to whom grace comes. Look at chapter 6, verse 9 of 10 and 9. There are three things that it is said of Noah, that he was a righteous man, that he was blameless, not sinless, but he was upright exemplary. He was full of honour and he walked with God. How many times we heard that refrain and then Noah did as the Lord commanded. I'll quickly go through them. Genesis 6, 22. Noah did this, all that God commanded. Genesis 7, verse 5. Noah did all that the Lord commanded. Genesis 7, verse 9. As God commanded Noah. Genesis 7, 16. Those that went in, went in as God had commanded him. Over and over again we're told that Noah did as God commanded. We do not have any conversation from Noah. We just see what Noah does. He is obedient. He is, as chapter 7 verse 1 tells us, a righteous man in the midst of a wicked and crooked generation. He is the sort of man to whom grace comes. But if you just stop there, you think God was... God saved him because Noah was good. But all that about Noah's obedience and righteousness and blamelessness is another way of expressing his faith in God. Hebrew sees the Noah lesson of Noah as one of faith. Now think about that. How long to build this ark? Well, it took a long time. He kept building. He trusted God. He trusted God that there was judgment coming he could not see. He had faith. And if you're going to live your life believing in a God you cannot see, and a judgment that is not yet here, and a heaven that you have not yet been to, you're going to have to have faith. And God says to Noah when he tells him to build, he gave him the instructions 
of how to build. But once Noah gets in the flood, God doesn't say anything. It is God's mercy as much as it is in God's judgment. This is probably the first time I've done this in this church, but I don't know how many of you know the chiastic stru structure of scriptures. Um, I, I, again, the brother Klaus that I was telling you in Vienna, he just loved looking for the chiastic structure in scriptures. Well, here is a beautiful chiasm, and I will quickly show it to you because I find it thrilling. I wish I had time to go into it, but as I said, but Klaus always looked for the chiastic structure in the Bible. So Genesis 7 verse 4, it says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth. Seven. Genesis 7 verse 10, And after seven days the waters of the flood came on the earth. Seven and seven. I can send this to you if, if, if you would like it, because I find it absolutely thrilling. And in verse 12, the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. 7, 7, 40. Genesis 7, verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The point is not so much that you add these up and get a sum, because some are inclusive, but you have these reckonings. 7, 7, 40, 150. Now look what comes out at the other end. Genesis 8, verse 3, at the end of 150 days, the waters abated. Genesis 8, verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark. Genesis 8, verse 10, he waited seven days. Genesis 8, verse 12, he waited another seven days. So you have 7, 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, 7 Seven. It's not the secret Bible code, it's a, literary it's a literary technique. And in the middle is the X. What is, what is the middle of that? What is the middle of those two things? What is the middle of the funnel? It is Genesis 8, verse 1. After the 150, before the next, and God remembered Noah. And God remembered Noah. That was the turning point, that God remembered Noah. He moved towards Noah in grace. He was mindful of Noah. He was ready to act on behalf of someone with whom he had made a covenant. He remembered Noah. It's not going to rain forever. The ark is a picture of salvation. Genesis 7 verse 16, And those that entered, male and female, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. In that box was all that God needed to rebuild creation. Eight people, animals of course. If we had time, we could show a number of parallels between the ark and the tabernacle. The Spirit of God was with the building of the tabernacle. The Lord spoke and Moses did. And it is the same language because the tabernacle is an ark and the ark is a tabernacle. It is a place where the holy are gathered and we're safe, we're protected by God. That's a wonderful picture of the ark. It is the tabernacle, it is the temple where we're safe. Or it's like the Garden of Eden in miniature on water. Inside is life and blessing, outside is curse and destruction. The ark is a sheepfold, it is a tent, it is a house, it is a family, it is God saying, in here is salvation in this boat. 
I tell you something very interesting. Architects built churches the way they did for a reason, and we're very fortunate to be in such a church. If you look up, just all look up now, and you'd have a sense of being in the hull of a ship. The ark. We're in an ark. Because the church represents the place where God's blessing is, where his favour is, where his mercy is known. This is a wonderful building just to show that. It looks like the hull of a ship. Because the church will sail through an ocean of judgment, a world flooded with evil, and we're kept safe, and we're preserved in the ark because God promised. The other place in the Bible where we have the same Hebrew word for ark is not the ark of the covenant, by the way, that's a different word, but it's Exodus when the basket, when Moses was put in, he was put in an ark, a vessel, salvation. Moses will be safe in the ark. Brothers and sisters, we are safe because Jesus has come. However unsafe it is out there, and it seems very unsafe, we are safe because Jesus has come. The Redeemer would be preserved, and God's people will be safe in the ark to be preserved for the new creation. You'll be saved from the judgment to come if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. There is much more about Noah and his family that are constantly repeated than there is about the rest of humanity dying in the flood. The Bible doesn't go into the details that we all have. How did he build the ark? How did he handle feeding? How did he get rid of all that done? But that's not the focus. The focus is Noah, his sons and his wives, eight of them. So it's no wonder that when he leaves the ark, he presents a thank offering with the clean animals. He doesn't go out and build a house. He doesn't go out and build a field. He doesn't make a name for himself. He gives thanks to God. He presents a sacrifice. And if you think about it from God's perspective, he also made a sacrifice. I will sacrifice everything to make a holy people on earth, even if it means sacrificing my creation. And now, how much more do we see that on the cross? Even more. So the ark, brothers and sisters, is a picture of God's mercy in the midst of judgment. God's mercy in the middle of judgment. Are you in the boat? That's my question for you. Are you in the boat? Are you living by faith? Do you trust in the salvation now for a judgment that is surely coming? God has made a way if you would believe and obey and live in the boat. And so perhaps in light of God's sacrifice, in light of God's mercy for sinners, the most fitting summary of the story of the flood is found in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love neither can floods drown it. May the Lord bless the word for his glory.